0: Please turn your Bibles to the 16th Psalm. Psalm 16 is found on page 883, excuse me, 853 of the Bible provided for you in the pew. And we, on the fourth Sunday in Advent, finish our series of A Weary World Rejoices. And we look first at the weary world rejoices in the hope that Advent brings. And then the peace that Advent brings. And last week, the love that Advent brings. This week, the joy that Advent brings. You'll notice on the the candle wreath there, the center candle is the Christ candle. So these heavenly dispositions have been brought down so that believers in Christ, even in your sadness, even in your sorrows, even in your struggles, you might experience... The joy of heaven, the peace of heaven, the hope of heaven, the love of heaven. And Psalm 16 was written a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. But even then, the psalmist David is looking to the fulfillment of that promise of Advent. Psalm 16, beginning in verse 1. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious or the radiant ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. In other words, I will not participate in the godless acts of the pagans. Lord, you've assigned Me, my portion and my cup, you've made me my lot and you've made it secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I'll praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, you will, and nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Let's pray together. Father, these words remind us that The Christian life and joy in the Christian life is something that we can't find in ourselves, and so we're praying now, and we ask you to come down in a fresh way, Holy Spirit. Remind our hearts that there are reasons to be joyful this Advent, and remind us the source and security of that joy, eternal pleasures at your right hand. If there's anyone here today that doesn't know the joy of salvation, We pray that today would be the day of salvation. Strengthen us all in Christ, we pray. Amen. I believe it's attributed to Rick Warren, this statement, God is more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. He's more interested in your character than simply your comfort. There's something about that statement that unsettles me. I guess the whole idea that there's something about me that God is not concerned about. God would be concerned about everything about me, but it is striking, and it, is, it causes me to reflect on that contrast. God's interested in holiness in my life, not so much happiness. Well, I can understand why that statement would be derived from a study of the scriptures, because this idea that this life is without hurts. It's without struggles. It's without difficulties. You can see that happiness is that shallow superficiality that says life go, is going well with me and I'm Teflon. None of the pains of this life touch me. But something about saying God's focus on my holiness could cause us to believe if this is a life of despair, drudgery, anything that's happy or anything that's of enjoyment, put it away because God wants you to be a serious Christian. He wants you to be focused on holiness. I think the place that a Christian should focus, not so much on happiness or, or on holiness, should focus on the idea is what is biblical joy? Because biblical joy will unlock for us both the delight that our hearts long for as well as the purity and devotion to him that will unlock for us a kind of delight that we could not find in ourselves. We must understand joy or we're not going to be able to overcome disappointment. We must understand joy or we won't be able to make sense out of life's sadness. And sorrows and even setbacks. So I'll ask you this morning, are you on a path full of joy or is your life weighed down by the sorrows that you're carrying? Advent is is a story in itself, but it's to be a journey or a pilgrimage that reminds us that these holy dispositions, and that's what they are. Think about it. They are feelings, but they're stronger than feelings hope, peace, love, and joy. They're holy dispositions. And Advent tells us that when Jesus came into the world, he brought with him those heavenly dispositions. And we can live in this sad and sorrowful and struggling and difficult world with a sense of heaven because Advent has come. I think you'll see from the psalm this morning, two major points. Don't get lost in the subpoints. I just outlined the whole uh, psalm for you. But the two major points I want you to see is, one, this life is a life to struggle to locate your joy in God. Even for a Christian, this life is a struggle, and it's a struggle to locate your joy in God. But secondly, I want you to see from the psalm, As David reflects on God's faithfulness in his life, he says God is providing you the strength that you need. Even in this broken, disappointing, hurtful, sad and sorrowful world of sin and evil, you can still be strengthened in your pursuit of joy because joy has come down. Now, if you'll notice in your Bible, the the subtitle is this mictum of David. It's not very clear what the phrase actually means, mictum. Um There's six psalms that David wrote that the subtitle is listed as the miktam. Charles Spurgeon calls this the precious golden secret of the Christian life because he outlines all of those psalms, Psalm 16 and then Psalm 56 through 60, and they all start the same way. They start with praise to God, But then they describe trouble. They describe difficulty in this life. But the psalm begins to crescendo after admitting that this life is full of trouble and problems and they describe holy confidence and they always land at the end with assurance. You can see that crescendo and that trajectory in this psalm as well. But the two things I want you to focus on is one, While it is a struggle to locate our joy in God, because of Advent, and we'll see at the end of the psalm, the second Advent, we can be strengthened to live out joy-filled lives. So what is the Bible's definition of joy? It's not simply happiness or favorable circumstances. It really means this. Hearts that have been satisfied in God and hearts that find satisfaction with God to the degree that your heart has found satisfaction in God and to the degree that your heart is satisfied with God you will be a joyful person and to the degree that your heart is seeking satisfaction in things or people or circumstances other than God, or seeking satisfaction or disappointment in what God has brought you, you'll find your heart discontent. Now, I mentioned earlier this psalm was written a thousand years before Advent, before the coming of Christ, but in David's time as well as in the time of the first Advent, the people of God would have thought this. They would have thought, this life is about suffering. This life is about sadness. This life is about struggle. But when the Messiah comes, he will bring the rule and reign of God, and he will bring healing and hope to the world. And David would have thought this as well. He would have thought that they longed for the coming of the kingdom, the age to come that we read about in the New Testament, the kingdom of God. And yet, what we learn from the playing out of the advent is that Jesus did come in the first advent. He he came to fulfill all that was promised, but he also left us here to live in trust and delight as we wait for the second advent. We live between the now and the not yet, the in-between times. And in these in-between times, we're still going to struggle we're still going to experience sadness. And sometimes at the holiday season, for broken families, it can be some of the most sad and sorrowful times of your life. Well, where do you find joy? Where do you find hope? In this greater story of Christ's deliverance. Psalm 16 reminds us our joy can be full. We can locate our joy in God. And then secondly, Our joy can be strengthened by what God has done for us. Well, where do we find joy when we're struggling to find joy? David says two places. One, in locating the reality that God is our refuge, and secondly, embracing the reality that God is our reward. When God is our refuge, we will learn to trust Him. And when God is our reward, we will learn to delight in Him. As I said, Joy in God is being satisfied in God alone. One thing that's striking about this psalm is that David says, at this time in his life, he was a refugee. He was on the run. He was an outsider. He lacked a safe place and he lacked protection. This asks the question, when did David pen this psalm or at least What time period was David thinking about when he wrote this Psalm that he says, preserve me, O God, meaning that I have no earthly help that would give me any sense that I'm gonna live to the next day. Preserve me, O God, my life is in danger. You are my refuge. Maybe this was when David was on the run from Saul, maybe in the cave of Abdullam, Maybe this is when he was in the Philistine garrison, when he had to go to the enemies of God and find protection because the anointed disobedient king had turned against David in his jealousy and had said that David, or anyone who finds David, has permission to kill him. And here David says, I'm a refugee, and yet you are my refuge. That word refuge means your place of safety. You're a well-guarded, secure space. You are the watchman that's posted a watch that gives me my protection. When I'm afraid, David says, I can trust you. I can take refuge in you. Charles Spurgeon said that every single verse in Psalm 16 refers to single-minded trust. John Calvin says that this psalm reminds us that God deserves our whole trust. And anytime we doubt, we must doubt ourselves or our circumstances and never God himself. Earlier in Psalm 11, David talks about that God is his refuge. And he says there that though God is our refuge, he will test the righteous It may make you feel uncomfortable that God, who's promised refuge, says that he's going to test your trust. Why would God test our trust? He knows that we are frail and feeble, and we fail him. But he wants to burn out the dross of anything that we would trust in other than him. He wants to teach us that we can find our satisfaction in him. He is our refuge. Because he's our refuge, we can trust in him. But David goes on in verses two and three and says, God is not simply our refuge. He's also our reward. Verse two says, I will say to the Lord, I have no good apart from you. Verse five and six, the Lord has chosen this portion for me. He's chosen my cup. You are my beautiful inheritance. And then this verse here, in verse eight, just rocks me when I read it. I I read it and I think surely the language is reversed. He says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is my right hand, I will not be shaken. Do you see the vision of what David describes in terms of God as his reward? Those that are at the right hand of the king, of the omnipotent one, are the ones that have the power to execute the commands that the king would give. This is the general of the army. This is the prime minister of the politics. This verse says, we have someone at our right hand, someone who's doing our bidding, someone who's fighting our battles, someone who's destroying our enemies. He is at our right hand, therefore I will not be shaken. Do you see that David is saying, God is not only a refuge, he's a reward. He is not only to be trusted, he's to be delighted in. In that sense, we should walk into difficulty and we should have confidence. We should step out when we're sad and never worry that we're alone. He says God is our reward. Now man, when he rebelled against God, he rejected God's security, and he rejected God's strength. And rebellion is marked by rejection. Sin at its core, or we would say the sin under every sin, is rejection. It's the rejection of God's goodness, of God's love, and God's care of us. But what's amazing that happens to our soul is that when we rebel against God, Rejection is turned inwardly, and our soul is wounded by an infection, and that infection is rejection. And our whole life apart from God is spent trying to heal the wound of rejection. And we do this by trying to achieve enough good things to make ourselves feel worthy, trying to accomplish enough things to make our parents feel proud of us, trying to experience enough relationships in order for us to cover up the infection, the wound of rejection. How does God heal us from the wound of rejection? Advent, he comes down from heaven and not only brings those holy dispositions of hope and peace and love And joy, but he lives the faithful life that we could not live. He's known as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He takes in all of our rejection. He ingests the infection that sin would bring, and he dies a death that we deserve. Hebrews describes his disposition that night that he went to the cross. It's really hard to fathom when we read the struggle, not my will, but yours be done of our savior on the cross. But Hebrews 12 tells us this, for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he embraced the cross, despising its shame. What was the joy set before Jesus that would lead him to sacrifice and be rejected by his father? You were the joy set before him. You were the reward for Jesus. You were what he had in mind, that joy before him. He wanted to restore this rebellious relationship. Ed Welch is a Christian counselor and He's written a book that I found very helpful. It's called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And as I reflected on his insight about the book, a lot of it has to do with why we're so intimidated by other people, why we are willing to do things that even compromise our convictions or our said convictions in order to please other people. He says, because we make people big instead of God big in our life. But I began to reflect on that in the struggle with temptation, in the struggle with sin. All sin at its root is to make something or someone else big and God to be small. And so it may be control in your life. When you make control big and God small, you're willing to disobey God. When you make another person's opinions of you big. God becomes small. Sometimes you can make your health big and God is small in your life. This idea that God is both our refuge and our reward is to be the North Star for every Christian. Now, for you stargazers, you know that Polaris, the pole star, is the North Star for centuries. Those who steered ships and traveled used the North Star to navigate their way around the world. The north star is the brightest star that appears in either of the celestial poles at any particular time. A sailor could know his point of reference by his relationship with the north star. This is what David's telling us. (laughs) Believer in Christ, you can know your experience of joy by your relationship to the north star. Do you understand that God is your refuge and do you understand that God is your reward that unlocks You to live a life of joy. In fact, that allows you to choose joy Ever thought about that? Joy is actually for the Christian something that we can now choose I Know that joy is a feeling But it's more than that. It's something that we choose, because joy is a Godward disposition. It's a choice to choose a Godward disposition. Just a couple of quotes here. Aquinas once said, no one can live without joy and delight, and that is why a man will deprive himself of spiritual joy, only to then turn and seek after carnal pleasures. If a man deprives himself of spiritual joy, he will be in pursuit of joy, but it'll be carnal. Martin Luther said this, a Christian should be joyful. If not, he's being tempted by the devil. And C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity described this picture of choosing joy this way. Good things as well as bad are caught, not taught. They're a kind of infection. You want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, you must get close to the source of joy, the thing that has joy. It's not a sort of prize that God gives you, it's a choice that you make. If you are close to the source, the warmth and the wet Will transform you. So I'll ask you this morning, are you choosing joy, Christian? Because if you belong to Christ, Advent says that you can choose joy. I was meeting with a member of our congregation recently, and she began to talk about how she'd become very disappointed in every relationship that she had. Every person in her family, work associates, those at church, and she could just pick out all the the critical things that she felt towards that person. And she really thought everybody else, if they could change, she could be a happier person. But the Lord began to convict her, something that I had preached in one sermon, and she began to go down a path. And for the last year or so, she's been pursuing this path of contemplation over activity and connection with God over time on social media and time with friends. And I asked her, well, how has that changed you? As you've said no to some practices that you had participated in, and now you're saying yes to time alone with God, extended times, she said, I'm experiencing a, des- a greater desire for Christ and a greater joy. And I think that's what this Psalm tells us, that first, God is our refuge and reward, invites us to choose joy, but we've got to ritualize our joy. Say this very carefully, but we all have as much joy in our life as we desire. And the Psalmist here, who's a refugee, who's on the run, summarizes this reality. How do you ritualize your joy? How are you strengthened in joy? Now, I won't take time to go through every passage here, every section, but if you'll see in your outline, we strengthen our joy in God by growing in our understanding of the character of God. That's verses 1 and 2. We strengthen our joy in God by connecting with companions who are also pursuing joy. We seek our joy in God by comparing the sorrows of those who worship idols. We find our joy in God by cultivating communion with God, growing in confidence with God, listening to the counsel of God, conforming our lifestyle, ritualizing our joy. And it's all, the consummation of all this is consumed in what God's done for us. Just a couple of points I wanna make here before we close. Let me first refer you to this idea of companions. David says here, you give marvelous comrades to me, could also be translated glorious ones or even radiant ones. What's striking about that phrase in verse three, he's describing some fellow companions. These are probably the misfits that are with him in the cave that became his mighty men, the outsiders who trusted in God and supported him when he was rejected by Saul but he calls them glorious or radiant. Those are words that are only used for God. And he's, David, using this word to talk about the kind of companions that he walks with. He walks with people who help him to see God, who show him the light of God, that experience the joy of God. I'll ask you this morning, are those the companions that you're surrounded with? Are you building your joy with others who are also seeking the joy of God? I was talking to a parent about our children, and I said, Our children in this next generation are going to need more dense and deep networks. And sports and school and neighborhood sometimes decide the networks for our children. And I want you to know, if they're not building deeper companions with those who are seeking joy in God, their soul is in peril. And we need to be thinking about the kind of companions that will point us to joy even in our sorrows. Think about when Paul's talking to the Corinthians. He says that those who are followers of God, even when they're full of sorrow, are constantly rejoicing. They're sad celebrants because they understand that God is both refuge and reward. I'll encourage us all to evaluate the companions that we're connecting to. But I also want to highlight this verse six for just a second, the confidence that David reflects upon. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, your heritage is beautiful. That verse seems out of step with the whole psalm to me because think about David on the run in a cave. And I guess he's writing these prayers down or refining them. Maybe he's reflecting back on that. That would make sense. But it's out of line because nothing in David's present life would look pleasant. (laughs) The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That sounds like a pretty happy life, doesn't it? Most of David's life was an experience of difficulty, struggles, and setbacks. But what does he see here? He seems to see beyond the moment. He sees the fulfillment of that Messiah coming. He sees God's plan, a lot like Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say that all things are good. But it says that God is working all things for good, for his glory, for our benefit. God has a plan, and that plan is that things are going to fall, and lines are going to fall in pleasant places for believers. Do you believe that this morning? Now, I don't know your circumstances, and I don't know your difficulties. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the freedom to choose joy regardless of your circumstances." Why? Advent. Advent. And the second advent. And that's what I want you to see in the last three verses. Look at the last three verses. These verses are, we're told by Peter and then later Paul, and then later the writer of Hebrews. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfills Psalm 16. This phrase, you will not abandon me to the grave. He says, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will rest secure. David, great David's greater son, son of born in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ will make known the path of our lives. He will not allow our souls to decay. He will not let your Holy One see decay. He will fill you with joy in his presence, and eternal pleasures will follow you at his right hand. Do you see what Advent says? He came for you. He sent the Spirit to live with you, and he's gonna take you to his eternal home. Death can't stop that. Other people can't stop that. Evil in this world can't stop that. The second advent says that this one who is resurrected and is reigning is gonna come again. And it says that he's gonna heal the world and he's gonna heal us and we're gonna reign with him forever and ever and ever. This Psalm is the objective answer that we can live a life of joy because Jesus has conquered death, Jesus is in heaven and Jesus is lining all of your life's events in place to bring your heart to a place of joy. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that when he thinks of you, he smiles? Do you believe that he's waiting to bless you and that he can be trusted? Well, just two things as I close. I would encourage you to read Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's maybe read them with your children between now and Christmas Eve. I want you to notice the centrality of joy in the Advent birth. You'll notice in Luke 1 that Zacharias, who is ministering in the temple, is told that he and his wife, who have been barren, are going to have a child. This is John the Baptist. And Zacharias is told, you will rejoice and he will calls many to rejoice in Israel, and then Mary prays after the angel visits her. The Magnificat prayer poem that we read there, the song that she sings, and she says, "I magnify, my soul magnifies the Lord, and I rejoice in God my Savior. She's full of joy because she's been visited, that God has a plan for her life to advance the healing of the world. Then, Mary is pregnant with Jesus, and Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. John, John the Baptist is about six months older than Jesus, but we're told that when Mary comes into Elizabeth's presence, the baby leaps for joy. Just think about that for eternity right there, okay? What's going on right there is that baby recognizes that joy has come down, and then Luke 2, We read this earlier, speaking of the shepherds, when they announce that Messiah has arrived, they say, good news, great joy for all the peoples. I want you to notice that Advent is centered on joy. Joy has come down. And then lastly, that hymn, Joy to the World. We're actually gonna sing this uh, in our closing hymn. But Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World really with the second advent in mind. And when you read the verses, you recognize that they represent what Christ will do in consummation when Christ comes to restore the whole earth. Verse one says, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Well, when Jesus came the first time, they didn't recognize his kingship. They didn't bow down to him. Heaven and nature didn't sing the way that we will sing when he returns. But then the second verse says, no more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Well, the curse still, the remnant of the curse still has its effects on this world, but not in the second coming. He we're told, we'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more sorrow, no more death. In the last verse, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the wonders of his righteousness and wonders of his love. That'll all be fulfilled in the second coming. So why do we sing joy to the world thinking of the first advent? It's because the first advent was when he fulfilled all that he's promised to do. The fulfillment of what he came to do in the first place came in the first advent. I pray that as you walk through advent, that story of joy will unsettle you in the places that you're sad and sorrowful, and resettle you in the joy of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we know that all too often we settle for happiness, rather than joy, and we only find ourselves empty, or we've been saddened and we really think, Lord, that we don't deserve joy. Strengthen our hearts. Thank you for coming into this broken world and fulfilling all that we could not do. Lord, I pray also that if there's anyone here that doesn't know the joy of Advent, that today would be the joy of salvation. Touch their heart. Give them not only peace and forgiveness and hope, give them joy in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.